Thanks for downloading a 3CR podcast. 3CR is an independent community radio station based in Melbourne, Australia. We need your financial support to keep going. Go to www.3cr.org.au for more information and to donate online. Now stay tuned for your 3CR podcast. But you also had people that were very fine people. Very fine people on both sides. And the, and the aliens would mind meld and give them the technology. They're bad aliens. So the, uh, Are you surprised the Nazis were influenced by demons? No, if demons are real, I would definitely think they'd be on the side of the Nazis. Yeah. McDonald's is connected to the Clintons. They chop up the bodies and put them into the sausage and hamburgers. People are being cannibalized. Look it up. And I'm watching CNN talk about this as violent white nationalist protests. We have done everything in our power to keep this peaceful, you know? It's uh, Pepe's become kind of a symbol. Welcome to Yeah Na Passaran, a show about fascism and its gravediggers. I'm Cam Smith. I'm Andy Fleming. And this week we are speaking to Anthony Lowenstein, the author of The Palestine Laboratory. Thanks for joining us, Ant. Thanks so much for having me. I guess just to begin with, we're recording this on Tuesday, so this will go to air in about 50 hours. So I imagine that quite a lot is going to happen between then and now. But as it stands, well, maybe you could tell us you've been keeping a close eye on what's happening in Palestine. What's happening at the moment? Well, it's been a pretty extraordinary three days, really. On Saturday, there was this kind of audacious, unprecedented, just remarkably coordinated attack from Hamas, which are the rulers of Gaza in Palestine, into Israel, land, sea, and air attack, taking hostages back, both soldiers and Israeli civilians, back into Gaza. Just the most, something that I've never seen in my life and no one really has has ever seen in their life. And it's led now to the Middle East being on the verge of a major war. When I say that, I mean Israel's about to send ground troops into Gaza, which is totally unsurprising, but also devastating because having spent time in Gaza as a reporter, I know that a few days ago, Israel says, all the Gazan civilians should leave. Where where are they supposed to go? It's literally blockaded in on all sides, so people can't go. And some listeners may have seen various images of buildings being destroyed, Gaza civilians being killed, families being killed, and it's going to get a lot worse. And the fear, and that's bad enough, but the fear is that you bring in other regional players, Iran, Hezbollah, who are based in Lebanon in the north of Israel, and others, and then it's kind of like an all bets are off situation. I'll just finish on this point, that the way it's being framed, both by many Israelis, but also the Western political elites, is this is like Israel's 9-11. And the reason that I think in some weird way actually is an apt uh, description, is that the fear that I have is that the way the US reacted after 9-11, as everyone will know, was 20 plus years of utterly devastating policies, killings, invasions, occupations, Iraq, Afghanistan and elsewhere. And I fear that what may happen by Israel, supported by much of the West, of course they're not going to invade Iraq or Afghanistan, but The equivalent would be a major regional war, killing of various Palestinian officials across the Middle East and the world, which is very much the Israeli playbook. That's what I fear is going to happen in the coming months and years, and that's a petrifying possibility. Anthony, the book 
is timely. Could you tell us why you decided to write the Palestine Laboratory? So the idea behind the book was to examine Israel's surveillance and arms industry. And a lot of people might not know much about that, although some might. And I'll get into the context of what happened last weekend in a minute. But in general, Israel's the 10th biggest arms dealer in the world. It sells weapons to pretty much the majority of nations in the, on the planet. And I was interested not just in examining the arms industry, which could be a pretty dry study, but looking at how tools and technologies are tested first on Palestinians in Palestine, so-called battle-tested, before they are sold and promoted around the world. So we're talking about a huge numbers of nations, Saudi Arabia, India, Rwanda. I mean, I calculated well over 125 countries around the world. And despite what some people might think, maybe not listeners to this show or those on the left, but certainly when we look at the UN, you think, well, there's a UN vote seemingly every few minutes on Palestine. And generally, the vast bulk of the world are on one side. And the other side is Israel, US, sometimes Australia, and a handful of Pacific Island states. So that might look like the entire world's against Israel, but in fact, that's not true. Israel is a plays a remarkably central role in not just geopolitics, but also the arms industry. And so the book is kind of a global investigation into that. And secondly, it's also a look at how Israel provides increasing amounts of inspiration to the global far right. I know you guys cover this issue. I mean, the far right, I mean, extensively, which is so important. And the reason I think that's important is that it's pretty remarkable often when you go to far right rallies, and I go there, just to be clear, as a uh, journalist, not as a participant, in various countries, you often see the Israeli flag. And on the face of it, that might seem bizarre. Why would you have far-right groups, often Nazi-affiliated groups, waving an Israeli flag for what is essentially a Jewish state? But in fact, it makes a lot of sense. And it makes sense not because they like Jews, but they deeply admire Israel's ethno-nationalist makeup. Essentially, Jews are given priority treatment over anybody else. And what they want to do they being often the far right across Europe, the US, Australia and elsewhere, is build a similar ethno-state in their area for Christians. And that's why in the book I have quotes from Richard Spencer, the infamous alt-right leader, and I could have quoted 50 others. And he says a few years ago, I'm a white Zionist. That was his quote. And what he meant by that was that he doesn't like Jews. I mean, he didn't say that, but I'm telling you, he doesn't like Jews. But what he does really admire is Israel's kind of utterly uncompromising Jewish supremacist worldview because he wants to do similar things in his country, the US, for Christians. And I see these alliances, as I talk extensively about in the book, between Israel and the European far right to the point where in the last, well, really decades, but it's accelerated this year since the most far right government in Israel's history partnering with, for example, last month, the Israeli government partnered or was trying to befriend the Romanian um, opposition far-right party with Nazi ties, I might add, which you think on the face it would be an insane thing for an Israeli government to do. And why do they want to do that? It was very simple. They openly said it. We want to get support for our occupation of Palestine at the UN and international forums. Like, that's the agenda. So seemingly ignoring the fact that this is an anti-Semitic party with an anti-Semitic past, And that, to me, is partly what the book's about because it shows that the threat that Israel poses is not just to Palestinians in Palestine, which is bad enough, 
but actually it's a global threat because the alliances that Israel is forming and the inspiration that Israel gives to so many of the far right and the global right is something that we shall be super concerned about. And you mentioned that the far right within Israel has entered into a coalition with Netanyahu. Could you perhaps give our listeners a bit of context about what's going on with politics in Israel internally? Well, it's a shit show. I think that's that's probably the the best summary. But a slightly longer explanation is, look, Israel, I think there's a bit of a myth in the West that when the right wing is not in power in government, things are kind of more stable. And yes, this year there's obviously been a huge instability, lots of protests, people will have seen on TV or online. Netanyahu, the Prime Minister of Israel, who's seemingly been there forever, is in coalition with the far-right fascist parties, some of whom openly call for ethnic cleansing of Palestinians. And those people have always been around in Israel, but they're incredibly empowered in the last years. And in some ways the way I see it is that the far right really has taken over Israel. And I'm not just talking about this year. Not every Israeli Jew, of course, supports the far right. They don't. But when you have a settler movement when over 50 plus years, the longest occupation in modern times, Israel has now moved 750,000 Jewish settlers illegally into occupied territory. And the way that that has worked in a practical sense is essentially, and a lot of people in the West either don't know this or want to turn a blind eye. Occupation is really ugly and it's brutal and it involves ethnic cleansing, abusing, killing Palestinian farmers, kicking them off their lands, uh, Israeli-Jewish-led pogroms which have been supported by the IDF, the Israeli army, all these kinds of issues which are given some international press but not as much as I think should be. And the context for what's happening this year is there's been huge huge Israeli, principally Jewish protests against the government because they're attempting to neuter the Supreme Court. And it's framed in much to the international press as, well, all these Israeli Jews who are fighting for democracy, which some are, but the vast majority are not. What they're fighting for is so-called Jewish democracy, which to me is a contradiction. I say this as someone Jewish. I mean, I'm, I'm secular, I don't, I'm not religious, but to be a Jewish democracy is as much of an anathema as calling for a Christian democracy, in my view, or a Muslim democracy, or a Hindu democracy. It's nonsense. You cannot be both. You're either a Jewish state or you're a democracy. And Israel's made a choice for decades, at least since its birth, that it will prioritize Jews over anybody else. So a lot of the people who are protesting this year are upset with what the Netanyahu government's trying to do, but are not particularly so concerned about the occupation of Palestinian rights they want to maintain, I would argue, their own privilege at the expense of many others. There was an editorial in Haaretz about uh, sort of that sort of seemed to sheet some of the blame for these atrocities that Hamas committed over the weekend onto the far right parties, both for creating the distractions that allowed for the audacious attack, but also for inspiring the need for revenge in the first place with some of the things they've been up to. Do you think that the far right in Israel is going to suffer politically because of what's happened? Look, possibly. I mean, the short answer is we still don't really know exactly how this major, profound intelligence collapse happened. Why was Hamas able to do these unbelievably audacious things? There's been some reporting about it, including there was a great story in Reuters this week, which essentially was pretty well sourced 
on both the Israeli and Hamas side, which essentially said that Hamas had successfully fooled both Israel and, well, the US, because, of course, the US also is a massive, in the world's leading intelligence-gathering country, and they also clearly were blindsided by this, that they fooled them that Hamas was, was not interested in escalation, when clearly Hamas was. And... I think it's likely that once this current war is over, inverted commas, as in Israel is going to invade Gaza, no doubt cause carnage in the coming weeks, once that to some extent has calmed down, I think there'll be a major reckoning because a lot of Israeli Jews are unbelievably angry, rightly so, about the fact that they were left vulnerable by a clearly incompetent far-right government who are far more interested, seemingly, in protecting settlers in the West Bank because so many Israeli troops were based in the West Bank in the last months, much more so than around Gaza, which is where Hamas breached the Israeli so-called border. So I think it's very possible that the far right will be sidelined. But again, it's important to remember the caveat to that is you can sideline the far right and get those lunatics out of government. But even when the so-called Israeli left was in power, which was a while ago now, last 20 years or so, the occupation didn't change. It was still deepening and expanding and building. So there is sadly pretty much bipartisan support for this kind of endless occupation. And because there's been utter global impunity for this, I mean, Israel gets away with this because no one is stopping them. I'm not talking about militarily. I mean, no one is stopping them politically, diplomatically, no one. They have complete carte blanche to essentially do what they want, which is why you now have the longest occupation in modern times. And people are, yes, let's be shocked about what Hamas did over the weekend, but let's not be shocked with the fact that when you occupy and brutalize a population for decades and decades and decades and give them no horizon of a better future, surprise, surprise, they resist. Anthony, the, as you've documented, the population of Palestine is subject to intensive surveillance, and yet what's happened recently has been described as a profound intelligence failure. What do you think this means for the kinds of surveillance technologies that have been employed in the laboratory in Palestine? Yeah, I've been thinking a lot about this, obviously, since the weekend, and on the face of it, it would, you would think that that would prove to be utterly disastrous for Israel's arms industry because... Other countries would look at Israel and say, sorry, we're going to get advice from a country that essentially just allowed huge numbers of Hamas militants to enter your, your borders? I don't think so. I actually am not so sure. I actually think it's quite possible that Israel's arms industry will grow. And the reason I say that is, yes, there's been major, clearly, breaches, problems. Many heads will roll. Netanyahu may well fall as prime minister. All these things are unknown right now, but it would not surprise me. But I think that Many, many of the global community will show 110% support for Israel, part of which is still buying its massive surveillance and intelligence gear, drones, etc. Let's not forget, since Russia's invasion of Ukraine last year, and we're now more than a year and a half in, Israel's arms industry has been soaring, absolutely soaring. Huge amounts of sales from European buyers, the Germans and others. And obviously it's early days, but I would not be at all surprised if the industry here, well, the Israeli arms industry, in fact, does not massively suffer at all. They may take a slight hit. There'll be some embarrassment, heads or roll, but ultimately I suspect that the industry will do just fine. 
as long as there's as long as there's a perceived accountability for the screw ups that happened last weekend, which in theory in time there certainly should be because there'll be massive Israeli pressure for that to happen. Anthony, one thing we've been looking at over the past few weeks on the show is the rise of artificial intelligence, which is a topic you cover in the book. Could you tell us a little bit about how AI is employed against Palestinians? So Israel claims that they're leaders in AI weaponry, and in the last years they've routinely, so they claim, deployed it to both manage targeting, so-called targeting of Palestinian militants, and I'm using their language here, and also the use of drones over Gaza and the West Bank. And because the danger, self-evidently, of AI weaponry, as it is with anywhere, is that there's no very few checks and balances, there's no serious accountability, there's no global regulation around AI weaponry at all. And Australia plays a pretty key role here. Australia, in one level, is a minor player on the globe, but they're also developing, and we've done a lot of, I'm the co-editor of Declassified Australia, and we do a lot of reporting about Australia's relations with the world. And if listeners are interested, we did a story a few months ago written by Stop the Killer Robots representative, which is a great organisation fighting, essentially, AI weaponry. And she wrote a really interesting story about how Australia's Australian government the Labor government, although it didn't wasn't much different under the former Morrison government, but it's definitely increasing under Labor, are developing huge amounts of AI weaponry which no, with no accountability, no oversight whatsoever. And Israel, of course, is a much bigger play on the international scene of this, but it's no different there. And it's like with what worries me is that we are moving towards a situation in Israel and the US and elsewhere where a machine will target a human for assassination and there's no human behind that decision now i'm not suggesting if a human makes that decision that also could be deeply illegal and immoral as well of course but when you have a machine making that decision i think we'd all we all should be profoundly disturbed by that possibility because it seems to me that inevitably the people who are most targeted as we've seen for example with so-called ai policing in the u.s where people who are most suffering in the last years as more and more police departments around the u.s deploys these tools are people of color People of colour are the ones who are most impacted directly. I'm not saying white people can't be impacted as well. Because AI, at least these days, does not properly recognise people of colour, and that's been shown time and time again, I think we're moving towards an era, and it's too often, I think, celebrated in much of the press as this is the natural advance of technology. Well, it may be inevitable that AI is used much more in our daily lives, but the idea that AI weaponry becomes massively used tool in warfare i think is something we should all completely not just oppose but challenge vigorously uh, i think also worth noting that you know, this is not a, a science fiction in hebron you write about the tool smart shooter which detects with ai who to shoot sponge tipped bullets at Look, Hebron, for those who don't know, is kind of almost like the best slash worst example of Israeli apartheid, where essentially there's about a thousand utterly fanatical Jewish settlers who literally regularly call for genocide against Palestinians, and people might think that's an exaggeration. I just urge them to Google Hebron and Jewish settlers, and they'll find that it's, I'm not exaggerating at all. I've spent some time in Hebron uh, with some of those people, and but it's a thousand settlers amongst tens of thousands of Palestinians, and there is a weapon there. There is still some human involvement in that potential weapon in Hebron, but like I say over and over again, Palestine is a laboratory. (laughs) 
just like, for example, the wars in Afghanistan and Iraq were testing grounds for new American weapons. In fact, the current war in Ukraine is a testing ground for new weapons for a lot of American and Australian and Western firms that are supporting Ukraine against Moscow. So what Israel is doing in some ways is not unique. What is unique, though, is that they have an occupied Palestinian population on their doorstep permanently for over half a century, and they are testing various weapons and tools of occupation on them, which they then sell globally. So I am really concerned that there's not enough people aware of this. I've been really encouraged, though, I have to say. The book came out in May in Australia, in the US, and the UK, and it's coming out in translation editions next year. And I've been really encouraged, if I can say that, of just the amount of interest and, I think, people's unawareness of some of these developments that one of the reasons I read the book was, as someone who spent a lot of time in there, I was based in East Jerusalem for many years. I've been writing about this conflict for 20 years now. Obviously, I'm Jewish, so I sort of feel a connection to what's happening, although clearly from a position of deep shame about what Israel's doing, really in my name, that what's happening in Palestine is not staying there. It's being exported globally. So as bad as the conflict is in Palestine, what worries me is that it's spreading globally. And what this attack on Saturday, I think, will do, I fear, is give even more impunity to Israel. Some people say, how is that even possible? There's complete global impunity now. That's true, but there's always it can always get worse. And when Israel in the coming days and weeks hugely expands, what I fear is going to be carpet bombing of Gaza and huge amount of carnage, I suspect the Western political response will be muted at best. They'll support it. Maybe not forever, but for the coming weeks, I think Israel knows that they have carte blanche to do what they want. Anthony, what have you made of the response by the Australian government to the attack? Was there anything that surprised you about it? I wish I was surprised, Andy. <laughs> I wish I was surprised. I'm not surprised. Look, the Australian government's response, both Albanese and Penny Wong, the foreign minister, was what you'd expect. It's basically, we support Israel 110%. We urge restraint against civilians. I mean, Penny Wong was on ABC today and was asked about whether the clearly illegal siege of Gaza was illegal. She said, well, it's very hard to make a judgment here in Australia. I mean, what an absolutely ridiculous statement. I mean, the UN, every human rights organisation in the world has said that this blockade of Gaza, which has lasted for the 20s, is illegal. I think Penny Wong doesn't know that. She hasn't thought about that before. It's just embarrassing. Look, Australia is Australia does not have an independent foreign policy on virtually any issue. And that's something we do a lot of work on declassified at, to sort of report on that and detail that. And that's something that is... Well, endlessly frustrating and, 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 well, some ways unsurprising. I mean, it wouldn't have made a difference if Scott Morrison was prime minister on this issue or Albanese. I mean, there is mostly bipartisan support. The only caveat to that, I would say, is there's definitely a growing amount of, and I'm not a supporter of Labor. I don't vote for Labor. I'm not a, not a member of any political party. But within the Labor Party, there is definitely a growing minority but a vocal minority who are pushing that party to do better on palestine people like bob carr and others and bob carr is hardly a radical he's a conservative politician for years but actually he's actually played a pretty important role in pushing some parts of labor at least to be far more critical of israel i don't see that reflected 
in the comments in the last days by Albanese or Wong. But within the Labor Party, there is definitely a lot of discussion about not being so blindly supportive of what Israel always does. Anthony, in the book, you refer in one chapter to the Sri Lankan Civil War and the way that the Palestinian laboratory concept unfolded there, not just in terms of arms, but in terms of maybe some of the concepts around how Palestine is treated. Could you speak a little bit about what happened in Sri Lanka? Yeah, for those who don't know, there was a really brutal civil war that went on for decades, and that was between the Sinhalese majority and what was then the Tamil Tigers. And it was a brutal war. It was fought principally, obviously, within the borders of Sri Lanka, lots of deaths. I mean, the Tamils, at least some Tam- many Tamils, wanted an independent state because they said that they were discriminated against by the majority population, which is true, by the way, then in the past and now. And over the years, the Tamils, Tamil Tigers, were, yes, they were sometimes committing undeniably hideous human rights abuses, suicide bombings, etc. But the government, the main government in Colombo, Singhalese government, was often getting... Yes, advice from Israel. They were being sold planes from Israel. At the tail end of this civil war in 2009, when some listeners may remember, it was an unbelievably ugly time where the Tamil population was increasingly a smaller and smaller and smaller part of land in the north of the country. And in the end of that war, there was undeniable massacres by the government killing, we don't know how many, but quite possibly 40, 50, 60,000 Tamils. And they weren't all Tamil tigers. A lot of these people were civilians who were stuck in this tiny area. And it's very clear, as I say in the book, other people have written more about this, that Israel was providing key intelligence and weaponry to Sri Lanka. It's important to note that in those sort of situations, like in a lot of wars, Israel was not the sole provider of that support. I mean, Sri Lanka had successfully framed its war post-9-11 as a war on terror, which is exactly, by the way, what Israel is doing right now after the Hamas attack on the weekend. And by doing that, by framing it as a war on terror, war on barbarism, call it whatever you want, there will be massive Western international support, which includes arms. And what's so disturbing about the Sri Lanka situation is Nearly 15 years after the end of that war, there has been no accountability, there's been no one held to account, there's been no war crimes trials, there's been no, there's been lots of human rights reports about what happened, but Tamils are still suffering there very greatly. And I have some Tamil friends of mine, both here in Australia and in Sri Lanka, who are crying out for international attention, for accountability, and I feel like that's still a long way away. Anthony, you've looked at the laboratory in Palestine, uh, the deployment of techniques to control the civilian population. There's a massive assembly of power that's being exerted upon those territories at the moment. And I guess just more broadly, I was wondering if you could speak to uh, the relationships between colonial settlerism as it's practised in Palestine and, say, Australia, because Australia has also earned a reputation as being something of a laboratory for various forms of um, border control and so on. So can you talk about, I guess, what you might perceive as being the commonalities in terms of how these states uh, prosecute their politics and maintain their dominance? 
Yeah, look, I've done a lot of work over the years about that very issue, Andy, about Australia's border policies being inspiring to many places around the world, including England and the EU. And also I'm not suggesting that what they're doing is solely because of Australia, but the whole sort of concept of offshoring refugees in hell holes, in Australia's case, of course, the Pacific, or in um, Britain's case, they're somehow trying to export people to Rwanda, which hasn't happened yet, but hopefully never does. I think it's interesting that there is a lot of support for Israel amongst fellow settler colonial states. It's not accidental. It's not accidental that Canada and Australia and New Zealand, although they're a bit, a bit muted over the years, but the US and others, states that have massively attempted or successfully committed genocide against their own indigenous populations, see an affinity with Israel. Now, obviously, support for Israel globally is for a range of reasons amongst Western states. I think it's partly because of the Holocaust, partly because of the US support, partly because it's seen, uh, supporting Israel is seen as a way to get close to the White House and US power. There's a range of reasons. I don't think it's solely because of settler colonialism, but clearly that's a factor. There's no doubt that's a factor. And the inspiration that Israel itself uh, offers to many nations, so they claim, because one of the things I discuss in the book, which ties into this, is that it's not just the fact that nations want to get repressive technology from Israel. It's well beyond that. In some ways, they want to also repress their own populations, and Israeli repressive tech helps them do that. But I think it's also the concept of they want to get a taste of getting away with it. Now, you don't really sell that for money, but a lot of states, and I have copious amounts of evidence of the book of this, look at Israel and they say, how the hell do you get away with it? How are you able to do all the brutal repression that you've done for so long without really any international attack, really? No accountability. And they want a piece of that. And, and they often say to Israel, teach us. And Israel is more than happy to do so. So that's partly settler states and some states that are not settler states. But I think that the inspiration that Israel provides to the world, in some ways in that context, makes sense that in a bipartisan way, huge numbers of Australian political leaders, let's, just, let's, let's not forget the way that those wheels are greased here is for all the reasons I just said about why so many of the political and media elites seem to slobber over Israel, but also because the Israel lobby here sends every year huge amounts of politicians and journalists on free lobby trips to Israel. That's how that works. I've written about this for years. So they go there on the 10-day trip and it's all expenses paid and they fly first a business class and they stay in lovely hotels, etc., etc., and they get a certain narrative. That's how it works. And you can be rest assured that when this current so-called conflict dies down, those trips are going to hugely increase. There'll be a lot more journalists and politicians going on those free lobby trips. Well, and we'll have to leave it there. The book is The Palestine Laboratory, How Israel Exports the Technology of Occupation Around the World. And people can find you on X at Ant Lowenstein. Thanks for joining us. Thanks so much for having me, guys. Well, we'll be back next week, Andy. See you later. See you then. Work on
Palestinian fight isn't just the Palestinians' fight, it's all our fight, because it's a fight not just about land, it's about a fight for freedom. Everybody should be standing here today saying, free Palestine. Solidarity with our Palestinian brothers and sisters, on behalf of the Bumbanja Nation, my people who've never ceded their sovereignty. We should be recognising Palestine as a state and recognising the rights of Palestinians. 3CR. Stay tuned, stay radical. Have you experienced or seen racism against blackfellas? Report racism against First Nations people with Call It Out, an online register to expose racism. Stand up, be heard, call it out. Go to callitout.com.au. A 3CR supporter. Public transport's great. What's not great is that unless you've got a radio with you, you can't listen to 3CR when you're on it. Until now, the Community Radio Plus app lets you listen to us wherever you are. Get on board and search Community Radio Plus wherever you get your apps. <laughs> 